Right, so uh, if you guys are staying, come for the discussion circle over here. Um, so let's thank Samia again for another beautiful khutbah. Alhamdulillah. Takbir, Allahu Akbar. Yes. And for those who don't know, Takbir is asking who is the greatest, and then the response is Allahu Akbar, God is the greatest. Um, so hold on a second, though. You're saying the way to respond to calamity is not carbs. <laughs> I've had it wrong. I wish I heard this chutzpah about 40 pounds ago. <laughs> um, but it was a really, really beautiful chutzpah, and I'm sure you guys, um, you know, we're all coming uh, today to continue our discussion of Nabra that started last month. Um, so we're really happy to be able to um, continue that discussion and we really thank you for you know, stepping up and, and doing it in such short time. So uh, we like to encourage people who don't normally speak up to use this space to practice using your voice. Um, so is there anyone who would like to go first? Um, first, I just wanted to thank um, Samia for a beautiful chuppah. It was really wonderful. Um, also very timely since you know we're all kind of going through the trauma of what happened to Nabra um, so one of your suggestions was to like you know do interfaith work but how do you deal with like because those are usually the people that like you know don't have that like hatred or um, misunderstanding they're like more open like what how do we like bridge the gap between the people that are um, essentially like like committing the crimes? That's a great question, right? Um, how do we not preach to the choir, basically? So the question is basically uh, when we're dealing with interfaith work and right now we're thinking about the crimes that are being committed against our community, so the very people potentially that are committing the crimes against us, how are we to build community with them, build relationships with them? And the best answer that I can give you is when we look at the theory of how to create change at a social level and to do it in the most, most easy ways is they actually say do not try to go and convert those people who already have a stake in the ground against you and they're determined to fight you and to be opposed to you. We go for the low-hanging fruit first. We go to those people who are maybe neutral, maybe a little bit on the fence, but they're willing and open enough to listen and learn and dialogue. So those are the people we reach out to first. And my sister actually, when, ta when she taught, because her area of expertise is actually is an interfaith engagement. And when she talks about this very question, she gives this like really nice analogy of it's not so much a matter of you're preaching to the choir or not. It's more about if we do have a choir, then we still have to fine tune the the the, what's the word, the, the 
way the choir works together so that we can produce better music. Because if you're not fine-tuned, if you don't make the effort to be on the same page as with each other, the choir will not make beautiful music. So there is actually a lot of value in even just dialoguing with those people who are already open or are already friendly to us and our perspectives or at least open to learning about our perspectives and it's sort of like then we ripple we get these ripple effects and we go we are able to create broader and broader impact great response thank you um, it kind of reminds me of the tipping point um, when he the author was talking about how uh, one of the ways they um, cut down in crime in a certain neighborhood was just to go clean up all the graffiti because then it created this culture of, you know, crime is not tolerated in this neighborhood. It's a better neighborhood. So it's kind of the same theory of going after the, you know, uh, the culture as a whole and the system as a whole. Great. Anyone else? Question? How about we hand it to the sister and the mom? Is there anything you guys want to say? Any congratulations? <laughs> She's the one who normally doesn't sleep. <laughs> want to say something, Mama? Well, I just um, loved it because, you know, we, we read the Quran so much. We read Surah Al-Fatiha every single day. But when, when hearing it as like, oh, it's an actual formula, that shifted something for me. Um, so I really appreciated it. And also like the reminder to think of God's characteristics and relate to him in the different ways is I think what also impacted. And particularly keep, I think the part that was new for me today was um, that worship is not about what you do, it's about how you relate to God. So I thought that was a beautiful point. Um, if you want to say anything more about that, you can. But like the difference between relating to God and how that is worship versus the act itself. I mean, the the idea of we are in a relationship with God is, I mean, from our perspective as Muslims, it's the fact of our life. It's the fact of the reality of, of, of the universe and the doing part it just flows naturally from that. It's like when you, it's like maybe the difference between being and doing that we often talk about, my sister and I, is that there is, there is, we are human beings. So there is a being part of who are we being, who are we choosing to be. And then there's the doing. So it's like, if I want to be peaceful, what do I have to uh, do in order to be peaceful? Uh, or if I want to be in a relationship with God of a certain kind, then what do I have to do? It's, it's, uh, we are already, regardless of what we choose to do or not do, we are in a relationship with God anyway. But it's a matter of what kind of a relationship do we want to engage in. And that's the choice that God has given us, is that you can choose to be in a relationship of where God, we acknowledge God as our Lord and our creator and the most merciful and all those amazing things. And then that means certain things in terms of what we have to do to hold 
uh, to honor that, to honor that commitment or to honor that intention of being in that kind of relationship. But we could choose not to be in that kind of relationship. Lots of people choose not to be in that kind of relationship with God. doesn't mean they don't have a relationship with God. Uh, it just means it's a different kind of relationship. So I think that's where the, the choice of doing comes in. Um, it was a lovely uh, sermon. A couple, I, I was going to say quick questions, not really. Uh, one is, you say, Lord of the Worlds, plural, so I would like a little explanation. I have my own interpretation. I'm not sure it's the same. And the other uh, is always referring to Allah as a he in the masculine. And I know a lot of religions today that are more modernistic uh, use a neutral term or sometimes, uh, you know, exchange male and female. So I wanted your uh, response to that. Great question. I'll answer the second question first uh, because it'll be a little bit quicker. So from an Islamic perspective, there is absolutely no confusion in knowing that God himself is beyond gender. God has no gender. God is neither male nor female. These are just created um, aspects of how he, God created us. So the reason that I keep uh, sort of saying he is just because it's like it's a habit that God built into me from when I was a little kid. And we didn't have that level of awareness at that time to think about, oh, is it problematic to be always referring to God as a he? So <laughs> it's just a matter of habit. However, you know, we are working on, and I am also working on being more conscientious about the use of, for example, certainly in the way that I write, you will have noticed there were very few times where I, I, I said he in, in the way that I spoke in the sermon because when I'm, I'm writing, I can be conscious of these things and I have the time to go and change what uh, I may not have been conscious of initially. It's just a little bit more challenging for me to um, keep to that standard when I'm speaking, so I often find myself defaulting to the to the to the universal he, but uh, th that's not because I think God is a he. Uh, so it's just a language thing. Uh, the first question, okay, wait, what was it? Oh, the world, yes. So it's a little bit of a mystery, actually, because that is the word that is in the Quran. That is how the verse phrases the thing. And so scholars actually have like lots of different opinions about what that really means. So some people say that different worlds could be like the life of this world versus the afterlife or the life that came before the the this world was created. So there's that worlds in that sense. But there's like uh, other theories about what that could mean. I was actually reading up on this when I was preparing for the sermon, and I can't, I'm blanking on what the other explanations were, I think because this was just the one that um, 
made most sense to me, so it stuck in my head. Oh, and Annie has a great answer for that. Um, yeah, so in regards to Lord of the Worlds, these are the explanations I've heard. Worlds referring to uh, the human world, the worlds of the jinn, or like the other creations, um, and just kind of encompassing everything that exists. Um, because, you know, humans live in one world, and then like things that live in, you know, other parallel dimensions, or however you want to say it, um, things like that. Or worlds, you know, if you want to kind of go like the... Um, more like mysterious cosmic route. It could be like other planets, um, like aliens that we don't know of but still exist. Um, I think it's it's kind of left open to interpretation for a reason. Um, it's it's just part of like the unseen, so we as humans can't really know it um, right now. But it's just kind of just so Allah doesn't miss out on leaving anyone out. It's saying that Allah is yeah the Lord of the world, meaning anyone and everyone that has ever existed and will exist. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was kind of going in that direction that we're, um, you know, because we live on planet Earth, that's all we know, but we don't know what else is out there. And so God doesn't make mistakes. If he said worlds, then there are others, um, beings. That's how I saw it. And I also saw it in another point of view, if I wanted to add into it, is that, um, you know, the world that we live in here, right here, saying uh, America is not necessarily the world of someone who lives in Israel. So I was kind of thinking in that combo too. For me, I would lump them all together. <laughs> world sounds fine, because I like to know that I'm not the only being around here. Um, and it was another thing that I wanted to comment on with the first question, oh, um, about relating with your Lord, and um, I was thinking in the conscious point, we, we say things and we do rituals, but we're not necessarily conscious, conscious of where we need to be, conscious with dedicating ourselves to our Lord, um, and, <clears throat> and believing and trusting in God. And so uh, when we were small, and actually, when we started moving out into life, my siblings and I, my mother would sit down, and she now does this to her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, and she says, uh, ask God for what you need. Asking, make a point to sit down and consciously speak with your Lord and ask him for what you need. And so... Um, I think that brings the conscious part to it, where we're, we're not just doing ritual, you know, bowing down or alhamdulillah, and we keep them pushing. It really has to be something that's there, and it's something that's done every day. Just like when we get in our car and we say bismillah, okay? That is truly saying, Lord, take care of me and the family, okay? So I just, I think um, we have to be conscious and we have to believe. And then on the gender thing, I don't have a problem with the, the, the he or the male point. I don't see it either way. I see it as um, the, the spiritual kind of thing, but I don't really see it as manifested into um, that male or female version. Part of what I was thinking when it uh, came to the term the worlds, I mean, there's the conscious and the subconscious. There are the different ethnicities, uh, the different histories. Uh, I mean, there are so many different levels of being. 
And of course, there's the animal world and the plant world and just so many other things. So uh, I, I kind of look at it that way. Now, I know uh, Old Testament scripture says uh, king of the world. So there is that difference be, uh, several hundred years later. But I think all religion, uh, starting way back centuries ago, evolves a little bit, too, in terms of terminology and meaning. So it can be like just a translation thing. So if you read even just different translations, there are other others like uh, you were pointing out who will translate Lord versus King versus uh, Master versus there's a translation I read where it says the King and the Queen just to be more gender inclusive. So <laughs> you know that's that's all like uh, human interpretation stuff. Actually, um, so when when we first started the women's mosque, people started to bring that to my attention, and I had never thought of it before. I mean, I I'd heard of people saying that, but I always thought, oh, they're making a big deal out of nothing. Um, and then um, I uh, I can't remember who um, who kind of changed my mind on this, but um, basically kind of did a thought experiment of calling God she instead of he. Um, and it was a little shocking to me, jarring. Um, and then I was thinking, well, if that's jarring, shouldn't the word he be equally as jarring? Because I believe that God has no gender or transcends gender. Um, and so it took me, I think, almost like a year to really get used to just saying God all the time um, instead of he. Um, but it definitely, you know, it, it slows you down and makes you more conscious. Um, so that's always a good thing. And then the other thing is um, uh, a few of my friends were having this discussion of, like, how did they get past that that barrier in the English language or in any language, human language. Um, and one of the really beautiful things um, that we're given in Islam is 99 different names to call God by. So there is the most merciful, the most uh, compassionate, um, you know, the most loving. There's so many different names, and those 99 are just the ones that we're aware of. Um, but so if we do that instead, like instead of saying he, we just substitute whatever name uh, in particular relates. Um, that's a great um, that's a great way to go about it. Um, and then finally, um, our second khatiba, uh, Dr. Rose Aslan, um, she actually gave a khutbah and um, talked about uh, the feminine root of the words Rahman and Rahim. So um, the, the fact that the word um, uh, that m compassion and mercy comes from also comes from the root word that the word womb comes from. Um, and so if you look at all of the different names, there are, you know, quote unquote, feminine sounding names and masculine names, but we do believe as Muslims that God transcends gender. And even the names aren't really names, they're qualities of God so that we get to know him. And I say him again, I know, it's, <laughs> it's so ingrained. We get to know God, not as a person, but as the entity that he is. So it's not really person, human thing, it's larger than that. So you get to know his qualities. In the names of the 99 names of Allah, um, you know, I read through these things, but I don't remember all of it. But just maybe two weeks, three weeks ago, one of my cousins reminded me that 
Al-Fatiha and Al-Fatah is actually uh, one of the names of God. So Al-Fatah meaning the opener. And I just started like, uh, you know, calling out to him as the opener, the Al-Fatah, Al-Fatah. And I have to tell you, it definitely opened something up for me. It was really, really powerful to just call on God using that name and and be like, okay, you're opening the doors, but you know, there's something opening inside of me as well. So it was really cool. Sal Fateha is a great example on so many levels. What happened for you or what you did? I don't know if there was a specific moment, but it was just this this light feeling and this trust that it was like it was the way was opening up. It was just this inner knowing that it's happening. Um, and it's in regard professional, like in terms of that, but also in terms of relationships, I just started noticing that things were just opening up and my heart was opening up. It was that peace. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Alaikum. Um, a long time ago, I was taught about the word he to refer to Allah. And it's kind of like, a powerful he. It's not human. It's just like when it says nahnu, we. And it says, well, why does he say we when it's only one? It's because that nahnu, we, is like the powerful we, like, you know, the Queen of England says, oh, we this. And you're like, why is she saying we? It's just her. So Allah does that. He says, nahnu, we created, you know. And that means the all powerful. So when we refer to him as he, it's all powerful he and also it's like because he when he gave the Quran to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, he could have used another word besides he for himself but I guess he probably did it for a reason so we can have our discussions as to why it is he and she or whatever that sort of thing like that you know <laughs> it makes it interesting to say well why you know but he used that because he could have had another word especially for himself instead of he you know but so it's like a powerful he, and if you really understand, not saying anyone doesn't understand, but if you understand the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can't equate that he with the he man or whatever. Yes. Just, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful he. So, so when I say who well, who, he, I, I'm like, I know it's not the he man, but I think sometimes the men have misunderstood. They think they're he's talking about them, you know? <laughs> exactly. I, I, I do think it's actually done deliberately as a test to see who is going to take, you know, misuse things and misinterpret things to their manipulative advantage. <laughs> um, but the, there's also a limitation in, or in the Arabic language where, like, um, when they refer to a plural a group of women, and there's even one male in the group, they'll re uh, refer to it in the male plural. So it, the Quran was revealed for all of humanity, but it also was simultane simultaneously revealed in a way that the people of that time could be receptive to it. So um, that's also another reason. Just for a little background, uh, when God's name in the Old Testament is not supposed to be pronounced, but the word that was given is for God is I am that I am, which is a, a very powerful phrase or sentence. And also the word Lord is masculine, 
word God is neutral, and I know a lot of uh, synagogues use the word, uh, or more progressive synagogues use the word Adonai, which is a neutral Hebrew word. So there are lots of ways, but I really like the, the concept, and I don't know if that carries over into the Quran, I am that I am. Is there any translation of the 99 that says something like that? So before um, the 99 names, or is it the Ayat Kursi? Wallahu He is who is Ar Rahman, Ar Rahim, Al Malik. So as he describes his quality, as the Quran describes God's quality, he, it starts with He is who is. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Quddus, he's the merciful, he's the most uh, beneficent, right? Al-Malik, he's the Lord, and it goes on to describe his um, qualities. So it's not human qualities, but qualities of majesty, qualities of, so that we can relate to him. And I think there was a sheikh who kept saying, in all the things that, um, in all his qualities, he chose rahmah for himself, right? That's a verse from the Quran, that he chooses mercy over all of the other qualities that he has. Yeah, yeah that's a great point. Oops, sorry. That's a great point that, you know, out of those 99 names, um, the two that start every single chapter of the Quran, except for one, um, but 113 chapters of the Quran are Rahman, Rahim, so merciful and compassionate. Okay, so I'm far from a scholar when it comes to this, but there is uh, La ilaha illallah, which is probably the closest that resonates to what you're saying, and that means um, essentially that it is the reality. So it's not, there's no gender that's assigned to, it's just is what it is, kind of. It's the closest that comes to I am that I am. But it's um, objective versus, yeah, so that's there. That's part of like. Uh, oh, you can speak. Okay, um, that's just like an. It's a main prayer. It's like, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, la ilaha illallah. So it's it's like a main prayer. It's not one of the ninety nine ways to reference to uh, God, but it is. It's like it's the closest that comes to a linguistic root translation of what you're referencing. I think. So. Um, and the translation is there is no God but God. So that, that's actually called the Shahada. So that's how um, you become a Muslim. You say, there is, I bear witness that there is no God but God, and I bear witness that uh, Muhammad was the messenger of God. And there are some uh, scholars that interpret the, the God word into just reality. Mm -hmm. So um, there is no, it's almost like saying there is no reality but this reality, or I am. And also to be distinctive, you can go further and you'll say, there's no God but the God. Mm -hmm. So the one and the only, right? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I love this discussion. Uh, <laughs> um, is there anyone else who, I, I know people might have come specifically to speak about Nabra and, and um, you know, things that we can do or um, ideas we can share. Is there anyone who wanted to ask a question on that topic specifically or? discuss or share or reflect or process with the group? Uh, on October 5th, I forgot what time, at the uh, sheriff's station on, um, I think it's Imperial and Normandy, they're gonna have a women's self-defense class. 
So even, even if you don't go to that one, just look into self-defense because we women, especially Muslim women, we need to learn how to defend ourselves. I'll say one more thing. I don't know, I feel this, so maybe you feel it too. Um, there is a sense of like, you know, there is, it's absolutely true. The wisdom is there in the Quran, patience, you know, be kind, be loving, and all of it is true. It's all of it is powerful. All of it is effective. But when it really feels like your heart is breaking, when it really feels hard, when it really, you know, like that fear and the anger and the, the, all of the sadness, all of it comes over, it sometimes feels like... Like I can't, when you're crying, it feels like, oh, don't be, be patient. You know, like there's something about it that feels like it's so cliche. It's so, like, I don't know, like it's not enough somehow to reach out to someone and say, oh, don't worry, God's there. He's, you know, be patient. So I don't know. I just wanted to voice that because, and I think the only response that I have to it myself is that, it's okay to cry, it's okay to have those emotions and to allow ourselves and each other to really express it without feeling the need to jump into, you know, be, it's okay. Um, I don't know, I just wanted to say that. Uh, well, um, I'll, I'll go to you and then to you. Um, so what gives me solace in those moments is knowing that um, that is when God is closest. So, um, you know, God, I, I believe it's a Hadith uh, Qudsi, so we believe that, you know, there are Hadiths where the Prophet um, uh, was basically quoting God. And so uh, one of them, I believe, is I am with the brokenhearted. So that is when we have the closest, most direct access to God. God is right there. Like if you imagine, you know, like if there's, if you have a child and the child is in the hospital and okay, you're going to give them whatever toy they want at that moment, right? When, when you said no before. Um, but it's like when that mercy is so close because of course God has compassion for your suffering. God hates to see you suffer. So So when, when we talk about the Fatiha being the formula to overcome any challenge and live excellence, one thing that I did not really get into, but thank you for bringing it up now, is that before we even get to the point where we are ready to ask for help and seek the guidance and figure out the, the straight path, uh, there's a whole process that happens that allows you to come to this point where you're ready to say, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Malik Yomindin, and so on and so forth. And um, if you look at the theory of what allows us or the process that m the vast majority of us go through in dealing with trauma, uh, there are five stages that have been identified and the first one is denial where you don't want to deal with your feelings and you do what you can to run away from them and we just can't stay in that uh, state forever and that's a blessing and then the second stage uh, you know, it, it, uh, wait, so there's denial, then oftentimes there's a sense of anger, there may be a sense of 
severe sadness or depression. And then we transition into acceptance. It's like when we have hit the wall of, I've, uh, you know, I've tried running away. I've tried to uh, like being angry and being like, why, why did this happen to me? And, and then I got really sad because I can't figure it, it out and I've hit a wall and there is nowhere else for me to go. You know, then that is a moment where we naturally then find ourselves in this place where we're like, I have no other option but to turn to God and ask for help. And, and, and so in that, when you are in that moment where you're ready to ask for help, you start this process and you begin to implement the six-step six formula. And that's when you shift your attention to Alhamdulillah, to, to, to being grateful, to reminding yourself of what is right and, and what you do have and all that good stuff and then following through the rest of the steps. So, but there is stuff that comes even before this. And maybe we can have another whole khutbah or a whole separate program that, you know, where we can focus on learning specifically how to deal in, in what happens before we get to the point of acceptance. Just signed yourself up for that. <laughs> Your third khutbah is coming soon. <laughs> um, so yeah, in response to that, you basically touched on what I was gonna say is that um, you mentioned that it's okay. The thing is like, my main thing at least for going through that experience is first admitting to myself that it's not okay. And even like getting into the habit of not telling other people that it's okay when they clearly don't feel like it is. Um, being willing to admit that it's not okay and I'm still going to hold on to my faith simultaneously. That's a, it's a, you know, funny balance to get a hold of. But um, on the not enough part, I think part of that is because we're, we're dealing with a lot of different issues on different platforms and we're only counteracting it spiritually. Like you mentioned, there are not being enough women, uh, Muslim women or Muslims in general in interfaith um, like gatherings or get togethers. I had the same experience of there just not being enough Muslims in protests in all the recent political protests. And a lot of them were centered around Muslim issues, but even in the media, when they were being referenced, they were talking about marginalized groups, but they wouldn't specifically mention Muslims, even though that was, our community was the one that got hit the hardest when it came to you know the election and everything. So I was at the protests and I noticed that you know the majority of the people protesting weren't Muslims, at least here in LA, and maybe that's because you know there isn't as much of the concentration as there is in Northern California and New York, and I'm from DC area, so it's it's different all around. But um, yeah, I think when we, as a community, are able to counteract it on multiple platforms, it'll feel more enough or just closer to enough. Um, so yeah. All right, well, thank you, everyone. Um, we'll close with some du'as. Um, so 